when you were in the store, you kept looking at the yellow one and it was really so joyful and amazing, one. but oh, maybe that'll go out of style. Who cares? Buy it because you love it and because it brings you some sort of emotion and joy. The Creative Trust is a podcast about the creative process. Amanda Henderson founded Gloss Creative in 2001 and has been making fabulous happen ever since. Gloss Creative and its alumni have mastered the art of creative renewal. Listen as Amanda sits down to explore some of the world's best creative minds. These are their insights and this is their legacy. Welcome to the Creative Trust. It's a beautiful spring afternoon in Melbourne and I'm sitting here with Brie Leach, who I will describe as a trend forecaster, interior sonographer and colour master. What I'm most excited about catching up with Brie today is because out of all of the guests that we've had, we feel she's the most like us. Brie's background in viewing design and viewing colour as sets and scenography is something that I was super excited to hear that you had a sort of a similar path, I guess, as we at Gloss Creative has had. So I'm super excited to talk to you today and thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amanda. I'm super excited to be here too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be a, a good one. So I guess, as you know, in our podcast, we love to hear about how people got creative. We're obsessed with what people do in their childhood and how that reflects on who they become. So I'm sure everyone would love to hear about who you were as a really little Brie. Ah, it's funny because I, you know, you hear these stories about people talking about their childhood and how, you know, their parents were this and that and, and sort of having these creative surroundings. I didn't have that at all. <laughs> I don't even really know anybody super creative in my family. So I sort of, I guess, stood out as a bit of a daydreamer or a huge daydreamer when I was younger. So it was all very much me, you know, imagining things in my own world. I used to draw a lot and read a lot. So I think drawing was probably my first passion, um, creative passion. Um, and they do say drawing sometimes is quite foundational in creative people. It, you know, it wasn't for me, but I think people who draw definitely that helps to evolve that expression. Yeah, for sure. I always find it fascinating when creative people don't draw because it's such an outlet for me and often where I start anything, like even just ideas that come to me and I sketch them down. Count down on paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's funny to, um, and I, I know there's lots of creative people mm. who, who can't draw or that's mm. just not their way of expressing themselves. So I always mm. find that fascinating. Mm. How do they how do they and get they, that idea out yeah. of their head? Yeah. yeah, so lots of lots of drawing, lots of creative expression in terms of being artistic, but not really having people around me that understood so that I think I was labelled a bit of a daydreamer. Mm. And then I just, I guess, kept finding um, outlets for my creativity through any kind of hobby, anything. And I guess my parents picked up on that. So they'd buy the, you know, the paint by numbers or yeah. like anything Great. that was anything to do with that. She's I had a lot of those. better buy the kit. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Craft it up. Yeah. Uh, any kind of craft, all of that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, that's pretty much how I occupied my time. And then, you know, I remember in primary school, there was like cake decorating classes and 
ceramics. So like pretty much, pretty much anything to do with being creative I wanted to explore. You're describing my childhood <laughs> going. <laughs> Especially um, the cake. Yeah. Oh, the the decorating. decorating. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm sorry. And baking, totally. even just baking, like yeah. just making things. So creating things, I guess, kind of out of nothing. I was fascinated with and I was surrounded with bakers. So my mum um, used to bake and I grew up with my two aunties living in our place and they that was a big part of my childhood was cooking, like making cakes, oh. making biscuits, getting out new recipes. I remember once trying to make meringue and it failed and I was devastated, <laughs> which I, oh. I don't think it's an easy thing to make as a, um, I was probably in you know, grade one or two sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. But then, yeah, doing the full cake decorating, I remembered making like whole big cakes for Christmas and that were, you know, the proper almond icing and oh, all of that stuff, okay. like right Skills. into the technical. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> and being quite proud of that. And then as I got older, I became quite obsessed with fashion. So that was probably where I thought I was going to end up. I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. So I used to, and quite from quite a young age, draw people and imagine fantastical outfits Beautiful. and then start making them for not dolls. I didn't really have dolls, although no, I probably made a few Barbie outfits actually. <laughs> now I think of it. Um, teddy bears, you know, like making yes. outfits for them, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. So just learning how to sew. I'd knit, crochet because uh, my two aunties had that background where my nana used to, you know, knit and crochet. So I learned to do that as well. Isn't yeah, that gosh, great? So many that of those things through <laughs> a family network. Like you said, your aunties work making and creating things as well. I think mm. that's such a strong thing within families. Yeah. And you hear that about bakers and cake makers, you know, where there's it's really strong in families. And you can imagine, you know, when everyone gets together that everyone brings all the different cakes that they make and, oh, you know, yes. it's a thing. And yeah. I, I think for a child to see that, I had a similar thing where I had a great aunt make amazing things and, you know, I was, my mum wasn't so into doing that. So I was just, my eyes were just wide open, like, I want to live with them. They make <laughs> cakes, you know, they make cakes and biscuits. So, yeah, it it is that baking thing is also like quite creative as well. Yeah, it's funny when like when I started saying, oh, I didn't have any creative people around me, I yeah, guess apparently. Now, that I'm, now that I'm saying it, um, they wouldn't consider themselves to be creative, but I had we definitely baking was a huge part of my childhood. And I guess the making, like the knitting and the crocheting mm. and the sewing, that came from necessity, you know, in my grandparents' age, they wouldn't have thought of that as being creative. They were just Doing like what they making had to a do. jumper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Making the socks or making mending this or doing that. Yeah. And mm. my my nana took quite great pleasure in making like she'd make these knitted teddy bears, which I still have somewhere yeah. in at home, um, and give them to us when we were younger or give them to the new baby. So that was a real kind yeah. of thing that I guess that oh, was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't really thought that much about the fact that, yeah, there were, I guess there was creativity around me, just not the way I perceived it. Also creativity, (laughs) the value of creativity and the way people see creativity has really changed, you know, like recognising it like we're doing now, we're listening and going, actually it was, that part of it was creative. It just, as you said, it was done through necessity or it wasn't called creativity then, you know. Um, And I think that's the story of so many people where they were creative and they did have creative upbringings, but you didn't call it that. No, it was everything so but that, Isn't which it? is so interesting. Mm. 
was it out of school that you left and thought, okay, I'm into creativity? No, very much right through from very young age. That was my focus. Mm -hmm. Um, It was either art uh, in primary school was all kind of art-based and craft-based and then thinking about fashion Mm -hmm. and then I guess um, I went to a fantastic um, secondary school because it used to be a tech school. So we had all these subjects, these trade Ooh, subjects. So I did great. woodworking and sewing, oh, metalwork, yeah. all yeah. the stuff metal you work probably don't. Yes, please. <laughs> Amazing. You don't get to really do those subjects. I mean, I know some schools have some great subjects and I was exposed then to graphics and ceramics and photography. Mm. Um, so I was really lucky to have that school, mm. I guess, um, and be able to explore those creative things. And so, yes, at that stage, I still thought fashion was sort of the direction I was going to go into. But then I discovered drama. <laughs> so I went on snap a Snap again, <laughs> snap again. I, we've had the, I got the drama prize in year 12. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, no, I'm going to be an actor. And I really focused on that. And I thought I could also sing. I can't sing, but I loved singing. So I was a school band, all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I um, love it. And then I think as I progressed... Um, towards the end of year 12, I saw the really strong, I did, you know, all the art subjects. So I really had that quite strongly, but I realized that I probably wasn't going to cut it as an actor. Like I was okay, but you know, I knew that was going to be a hard thing to do. So then I sort of thought I, I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be a director or I'm going to, you know, design sets, basically a set designer. So that's right. kind of, I guess, how it started to merge into interiors. And in the meantime, at home, I'm painting everything in my room and I remember collaging the back of my um, bedroom door with black and white photos from all the magazines to my father's disgust because (laughs) he's looking at it going, how am I ever going to get this off and repaint? Because he's very practical. (laughs) You don't care though. (laughs) No, but I basically just, you know, used the glue and collage. It looked fantastic. I should see if I've got a photo of that somewhere. But, yeah, so then I don't know how I just sort of, I must have sort of stumbled across the fact that that was something I could be um, into design. And, yeah, so applied and got into RMIT and, yeah, sort of. Took it from there. Straight, yeah, so I was I, quite lucky really to have a pretty straight line into where I wanted to go. You know, yeah. you hear a lot of stories about people going off in a completely different direction. Just because they got good yeah, marks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and not realising that actually their passion was interiors or whatever it was. Mm. So, yeah, I was kind of lucky to yeah, go straight Yeah, I feel work. the same way as well. I, I really do. So how did your work life begin? What was your first job sort of out of school? How did that progress? I I guess you'd call it like an internship now, but in our, in our last year of college, we were able to spend most of that working if we could get a placement. And I got a placement with a firm that did commercial work, commercial offices. So I cut my teeth in interior design through basically having, you know, these huge office plans and doing the puzzle of all the workstations, where everything went. How it fits, how the yeah, puzzle comes together. I loved together. it, to be Great. honest. So I just spent all day, you know, ha- we were hand drawing then, we were drafting, we weren't um, computers. Well, the drawing so... came in handy then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was always good at documentation in terms of, you know, like all the hand drawn stuff. Yeah, so I spent probably quite a long time, that was my main thing I did, was, you know, working out full office floor plans and then you sort of you know as you get more and more experience you get to do the fun stuff like the 
the kitchenettes. Yes. <laughs> Step up. Choosing tiles and laminates. Wow. and um, Great. And then into, you know, later on um, probably, oh, I was probably there for at least a couple of years and then I got, I got to work with some fantastic um, interior designers who taught me so much. And then we got to do more interesting projects. We'd work on the reception, which was obviously quite a lot more creative and the mm. boardrooms and all of that sort of stuff. But isn't that great that you look back at the things you first started to do when you started in an industry and you look back now and if you'd probably saw photos or drawings of it, you'd go, oh, my God, that's basic. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, what was beautiful in those parts of your career? Like, and I'm sure it sounds like you just enjoyed every day. You know, yeah. you weren't going, oh, I've got to get to, I'm going to be a this, I'm going to be a that. You were just like, let me enjoy today. I'm really into what I'm doing. And that's something I've noticed in, you know, people like yourselves and a lot of people who've come on the podcast, they start out by just doing what they love, you know, this making and repeating and redoing and just enjoying the day, as I call it. And I think that leads to this incredible skill base that people have. And they're not in a hurry to get where they have to go. They're just using it. So it sounds like you're enjoying yourself along the way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been super fortunate to really most of the time always have a job that I loved and that I was yes. happy to be going Me to and, and not having that horrible feeling of, oh, geez, I've got to Work go back tomorrow. there again. Yeah. yeah. No, I, mean, I, I'm, I definitely agree on that. Yeah. There's probably been moments I can pinpoint, but most of the time I've been, yeah, quite fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And to enjoy every day. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. It is. <laughs> I, I feel that way. I'm excited because when I see your work and the, particularly the work that you've done with Julex over almost the last decade, when I look at your work, I see a very strong scenographic view of things. I think you were one of the first people in the Australian landscape to start to assemble what I'd call dreamscapes. And it was interesting that you said you were a dreamer when you were young. Um, I can see that full circle. But I do feel like Interestingly, the scapes that you were creating eight and ten years ago and have definitely have a set like and a dreamlike quality that it wasn't an actual room, it was a place and had a sense of emotion or the outer worldly. Talk to me about you say, I mean, you say you're in interiors. I kind of seem see you a bit differently. Talk to me about your view and how that came about. Yeah, so, I mean, working with Dualux originally was about the trend forecasting, I suppose, and the colour forecasting. And then I was working with a team the first year creating, or they were sort of creating and I was sort of alongside, um, images that were quite residential. Mm. Uh, but they were supposed to be directed at architects and designers and specifiers, that community. And that's where I sort of saw this gap where I'm like, it's, they're fantastic and it's lovely to have these spaces. But I guess having that background of working in that industry, they want to see more possibility. They don't necessarily want something prescribed to them. Mm, so they want, it, yes, they want to be inspired. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it almost needed to be a bit more open and a bit more interpretive. And that's when you know, we started to look at spaces that were in studio, not necessarily in a home. 
and that were, I guess, a lot more dreamlike, as you put it. So a lot more imaginative and and pushing those boundaries of, um, I guess, what an interior is. So opening that right up and, you know, not having to be a living room or a lounge room or a specific space, but more of a mood. Mm. So that's how I sort of approached it. Because when we look at trends, obviously there's a colour palette and that's the very sort of basic approach of, uh, I guess, communicating a trend. But what for me, um, I think the biggest part of a trend is where it comes from and the mood that it's trying to create. Because really the trends start from a mood. So a global mood or a mood, a movement that's happening um, and that sort of influences how people are feeling and then that influences what people make and how they design and how they create. So to sort of flip that back and create spaces that communicated a mood was what I was trying to to move towards and um, it, with those spaces. It felt like a giant leap forward definitely from an outsider's point of view all of a sudden you know, it wasn't like, here's the fireplaces. It was like, <laughs> yeah. here's this sort of place. Where are we? Oh, and look at those amazing colours together. It did, you know, it abstracted the ideas and, as you said, gave this mood. Yeah, um, and it's uh, funny it's so actually, pretty. looking back at some of those things now, I mean, we're, so Dulux are celebrating the 25th year of Colour Forecast wow. this year, which is huge. And I've been working with them for, as you said, about a decade um, but looking back at some of those more kind of surreal spaces that we actually physically created and painted and made, I now sort of see them as something that probably would now be created by CGI or um, AI. Well, that's really interesting because actually one of the questions <laughs> I've got on page two is exactly that comment that I feel like a lot of people have done, had this idea about the dreamscapes through either styling or photographs over the last decade. And like us, like we've been obsessed with sci-fi. We call it sci-fi romance. We've been obsessed with those ideals for quite a while. And I feel like there's been a groundswell of these outerly worlds, whether it's mm. through floristry or a combination of sonography, floristry, all of these event experiences and pop-ups and installations that we've all created have actually formed. It's like all the AI guys have been watching that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm claiming it with the rest of the community in Australia. That has now, I feel like that was formed and, you know, 12 months ago or even eight months ago when AI became every day in everyone's phone. Mm. I feel like it gave the AI something to bounce from. I think there was amazing CGI and amazing photographers doing blending graphics and photography mm, yes. who have now perfectly poised to step into that area. So I think it's an incredibly interesting thing that, you know, I think it's been building that fantasy and those environments has been building for the last decade. And I think now just with the AI, I think it's just switched. It's really interesting. It is because I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective you're putting forward is that we actually are the ones who started. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, let's it. just claim that, Brie. <laughs> we did it. And it's funny because mm. AI, I'm quite fascinated with AI. Um, I think it's mm. exciting and wonderful and terrifying all at the same time. Of course. Um, but 
we are the ones that taught it originally and now it's learning. So the things it learns still come from us. Mm. (laughs) So you're probably right. I mean, I think you are because I think that there's definitely been, um, you know, stylists that have really pushed those boundaries um, and created those spaces in real life or, you know, with that combination Mm. of real and fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, we did do a whole year for Forecast where we actually shot. um, I was working with Heather Nettiking and, and Mike Baker and we actually went and shot these amazing landscapes and merge those with our studio shots to create these really fantastical spaces. So one was like a a drive-in, one we wanted to have like a space feel. So we went out to like a a granite mine or something like that. I can't even think of what they were mining there, but um, to get that sort of feel that we were on another planet. And the other one was a bit steampunk inspired. So we went out to, um, you know, sort of had these old trains in the background. But, you know, we added mood and colour and all of those things mm. to those landscapes. But um, I've totally lost the point of why I brought that up. <laughs> no, but, yeah, it's no, that sort of creating. It was the forerunner yeah. <laughs> to these outer worlds. No, I Because we were trying agree. to create those out of nothing yeah. back back then. Yeah. And now we know we can actually generate that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was from, yeah. it was just straight out of our minds exactly. and trying to find exactly. those physical things to make yeah, those To express spaces. it. Yeah. And I do feel AI, like you said, it's part wonderful, part terrifying, but I think the, like anything else, it's a tool. Like you said, humans control it and it's what we put into it that the outcomes, you know, will be there. So I the possibilities with AI, I think if we use it as a tool and twist it our way, I think it'll be Yeah, and I think amazing. That, that's what's so exciting about it is the possibilities are amazing and actually AI, getting slightly philosophical, <laughs> AI could be the solution to a lot of humanity's problems, but in the wrong hands it could also be, you know, the downfall basically. Go down the so wrong there's path. a big balance right now of yeah. um, where that's going to go. So. Yes, Who knows? interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I'd love you to describe your creative viewpoint. In particular, what do you think you're known for? What What's Brie famous for? Oh, colour, I guess, would be the first thing that comes to mind. And I, I'm good with that because it is definitely something that I've always valued and been drawn to when I look back at, you know, early makings of whatever I was doing. Colour definitely was something that played a huge part in that, no matter what that creativity was. Yeah, so I, I guess that is the first thing. And and I, I think that's also sort of become a bit of my personality too in terms of the way I dress and present myself because I think I've connected back to that value of yes. what colour brings to me. Yeah, And I have noticed all of your outfits when you go to Milan. <laughs> <laughs> we all tune in to see what sneaker, you know, you're wearing with your outfit because it, uh, Milan is a difficult thing to get right because usually it's quite warm and you're walking all day, but then you have to go to a party and look oh, fabulous. So, tricky. I know. so you need the walking <laughs> shoes, but do. then you have to change the outfits to go with it all. It's, yes. It is tricky. So you've done it. You've nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you've said that colour is your thing. So let's start with What's your favourite colour palette? I think that's ever-evolving. There are a couple of colours that I'm definitely drawn to. Yellow, like more sort of that citrus, citrine, anything with a tiny bit of green in it, I'm really drawn to. Cobalt blue, 
they're probably the two things and not necessarily together. They're just colours that I like if I'm love. shopping or something or I see something, that's the thing that will, I'll be drawn to. But in terms of palettes, I think that evolves because I'm, I guess I'm constantly experimenting with that as well. You know, now I'm loving a little bit of that blue or red, like a really clean, beautiful red or that yellow against a beautiful earthy backdrop, mm. which is quite sort of unusual. And we're just starting to see that coming through, but I've sort of fallen in love with a, just a couple of little examples. So I'm sort of expanding on that a little bit at home. <laughs> it's interesting how I feel like we've had a decade of what I'd call tertiary tones. Yes. And I feel like now primaries are coming back, but set against that sort of warmer neutral. Yeah, we're seeing um, one of the biggest shifts I think we've seen in the last 12 months is how much of these mid-tone colours are really setting the scene. So we've seen pastel and we've seen the brights um, and we've seen all the really moody stuff over yes, the last Yes, the darks. Time. Yeah, which I still really love. Same. But now we're seeing these beautiful just mid-tones which really are quite sophisticated so they've got depth and beautiful colour and then you just see the small amounts of those cleaner colours against that. So it is a bit of a shift I think um, mm. and I think that because people are getting more confident in their use of colour compared to, say, even five years ago. Agreed. Those colour palettes can kind of be embraced because they do require a little bit more thought and sophistication to kind of bring them together. I think tonal palettes are easy to use. Just so layer it up. Yeah. Layer it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you don't have that confidence, it's a great place to start because you can just, yep, lay those tones and it'll still be successful. But we're sort of moving into, I guess, exploring, okay, well, hang on, what about when we start to get back to colour combinations and how all those colours work together in a room and all those proportions, which are so important. Mm. Um, so it's kind of an exciting time for colour, mm. I think. It does feel like it's changing. The other thing I, you know, I see over the decades is the different colours of woods and neutrals mm. and interested to see now how these warmer woods, you know, almost like the woods that you wouldn't have put in your house 10 years ago, you're almost looking at them going, I don't quite like that. And it's kind of scary because you've seen it before, as we all know, a trend we've, you know, worn before is not great the second time, but interesting how creative threads reimagine themselves and all of a sudden the warmer wood next to that blue or that green kind of look right. Talk to me about what are the new neutrals? Yeah, absolutely. Warmth is the way to go. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I saw anything with, with grey, which yeah. is amazing because I never mm. really loved it, to be honest. I know we we really did embrace grey and then grey and pink together. I definitely had a moment, but um, the warm palettes, they just bring so much emotion compared to mm. the greys, I think. Mm. I think grey is pulling back and being less emotional and um, a bit less invested, whereas all those warm colours, particularly when you start to use different shades together, and I guess, you know, let's call them neutrals, but I guess they're not really they're not in a really. way. <laughs> whereas grey can be called a, a neutral, neutral right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's yeah. what we call it, particularly in the yeah. world. We'll say, oh, the new neutrals are these beautiful warm-based neutrals that have yellow or red yeah. um, in them. And I think neutral actually means like palette cleanser to put with other yes. things yes. in a way as Absolutely. well. I sort of interpret it like what it's do you the, put with the primaries? It's the base colour, right? Correct. That's how we, yeah, we so talk maybe, about neutrals. Yeah. yeah. So obviously... 
you are a master of colour. What I'm interested in is the forecasting to talk about that now, you know, how much science, how much just art or what I like to call the zeitgeist. How far can you see into the future with your forecasting? Let's talk about just, I mean, I've got so many questions on forecasting. (laughs) Let's just start talking about forecasting. Okay. So with what I do at the moment, we're only looking 12 months ahead and that's kind of, I wouldn't say easy, but I I find that easy compared to what I've potentially had to do in the past for other types of products. So I'm talking specifically about paint at the moment for Drulux, which is obviously my main forecasting gig. It's it's a little bit easier than if you are working, say, in the car industry, for instance, where in automotive you really need to be looking at anywhere from sort of five to ten five, years ten ahead, years. right? Yeah, wow. And that is not impossible and it's not an accurate science. There's still guesswork in there. But it is a, there's a lot more involved in it, I suppose, and there is, you know, that instinct part of it that you still need to follow no matter how far you're looking ahead. So it's totally possible to do that. It's just that you can't, you can't look at what is existing now in terms of, say, colour and design. You have to think about way further ahead. So what you focus on is things like, well, how, how is AI affecting the way we work? Um, what's happening with the global economy, like all these that sounds like very sort of top line things, but drilling down into those things and then working out how that's going to affect how people are thinking, working, designing, living their lives. So there's a lot more involved in looking further ahead and it is very much a lifestyle based forecast. And then you start to interpret, okay, well, if that's where it's going in a lifestyle um, area, how does that affect right down into what industry you're trying to forecast for, say like automotive or any kind of, I guess, production where they need to think about In advance. How, how it's going to sell. Let's face it, that's what it's really about, right? But for what I do at the moment, we definitely look at that lifestyle aspect, um, but I guess it's a little more top line and it depends on what we see being the bigger influences. But we can still look at design, um, fashion, because it's, it is only 12 months ahead. So those things that are starting to emerge now will affect what's happening in 12 months or six months. So it's kind of a little bit lighter mm. <laughs> than having to forecast that, that 10 Five years. years yeah, 10 years. Yeah. That's, that's the crystal ball um, stuff, isn't it? Yeah, Whereas absolutely. I do feel like we, we always talk about the fact that we pull such inspiration on our colour palettes from the fashion industry, the pace at which that moves and the uptake of new ideas is inspiring. And I do feel that that is something, you know, that you need to look towards and you need to look at the now, I guess. How do you work out what are those touch points or those indicators for you? Where do you look to find those indicators? Fashion is definitely one, but I I have watched that change over the years. So if you were talking to me 10 years ago, I would have said fashion was probably one of the biggest influences for interiors, particularly with colour and materiality. But I've seen that become a lot sort of shorter timeframes, mostly because of the internet and then Mm. social media. It, It makes everything happen a little bit quicker in terms of trends. So everyone kind of has access to seeing those Everything. runway shows, right? Yes, yeah, for sure. Ten years ago, 
no or one longer. Looked at, it well, I'd have to go and buy the big um, books. Yeah, the big yeah, books. Yeah, stand you know what I'm talking news about? Agency. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and then you know you might get a couple of copies because you're going to rip that up, and they were very expensive. But um, you know that's how we accessed what was happening overseas mm. on the runway. And now all we need to do is jump straight on the internet or go on the socials, and we see it instantly. But that doesn't mean that the production times have sped up. So it's funny, you know, using Milan as an example, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll go in April and we'll see all these amazing things and colour directions and everyone's seen them, right, because they're on social media. The 400,000 people that go those four days and the rest of the world. And everybody else who's interested. And then you come back here and I work on the photo shoot, so obviously I have a lot of ideas about things that I've seen. But that's not available here and it won't be usually for at least 12 months or at least until sort of early the following year. So it's still it's still not instant, even though we're instantly influenced, that still has to kind of go through that process of um, actually having those things available. So it's it's interesting now that I think that particularly people in the industry can get almost a bit fatigued and, you know, I've seen this, but you haven't really seen it. You just yes. saw it in an image somewhere. <laughs> yes, you haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, haven't yeah. physically. And, you know, yeah. then a project can take two years to, or more. To do. Um, yeah, to be finished. So yeah. So I think the trends are, it's almost an opposite. So the trends are sh- happening quicker but also take longer. Take longer, longer to, to, to arrive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, interesting, you know, you're making me think about f- interpretation of the zeitgeist, and I'm interested in your opinion on, yes, obviously you see a lot of stuff. Where's the conversion point to original work? Because, you know, obviously you know everything that's out there, but when I look at your work and the work you do with Dulux, it's definitely original work. How do you take what you know and bring it into your world? Such an interesting point and not something I've actually about how that ends up because obviously you know we are all influenced by Mm. so much that we see now even more so than ever before Um, and I have had discussions with other creatives about how do we know what we're doing is original yeah (laughs) how do we know we haven't seen that and we don't remember seeing it but now we're going oh this is amazing and Mm. interesting Mm. and or these color combinations that I just came up with but how do we know we haven't seen it we don't and I think it's all being absorbed and then by osmosis. 100%. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah, often yeah. how, um, you know, trends are formed in a way. We're all yeah. absorbing that. And then what, you know, the, the top end designers are, are kind of creating and what's coming out from that osmosis is what often forms directions in trends. But anyway, I, I digress. We'll come back to that. <laughs> we can come back to that. For myself, I guess it's just my brain that's and its interpretation of what I've seen, what I've absorbed, and then how I, I don't know, pull that together. I guess I do try not to be the same, but it is quite tricky if you're doing trends that you know have been influenced by other designers and and brands, and that's just part of the work. I can't, I don't know how it ends up original. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think there's everything's been done before, particularly now. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, but I do feel like when you're starting on projects like that, 
when there are often themes that, you know, people have already done. I think, like you said, from my brain <laughs> is kind of a great answer because it means that you're really thinking about what it means to you and you're pulling the threads, the creative threads that you love into something and creating it. So I, I think your answer is really good, your brain. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I guess it's that whole thing of no one else is you. You have your point of view and you, someone might have a simpler point of view, but it's not your exact point of view. So when you create work, it's your work. So unless you've deliberately gone, I want to create exactly this that someone else did, which is never something I would do. No one wants to do that. Um, <laughs> well, no one we know anyway. No, yeah. we try and avoid it, right? Yeah, of um, course. Then, you know, that's it's the point of view that I guess makes it original. Great. So now I'd love to talk to you about your personal creative process. So a brief comes across your desk, you sit down and collaborate with maybe Julux or whoever the client is you're working. How does your creative process go? Take us through that. Uh, I like to, I guess, pull apart the brief for a start. Sometimes the brief can be quite simple. So you're looking for Like something. a loose piece of paper <laughs> with a few bits of scribble on it. Yeah. Or a couple of, you know, a Pinterest pictures. Loose brief. <laughs> And sometimes you can have too much information as well. That's possible. I've had, I've had clients give me both. I've had fantastic private interior design clients give me pages and pages. So I can kind of absolutely transparently see what their point of view is. But it's usually, I guess, for want of a better word, regurgitated from other things because that's not their skill set. Their skill set is to look at all the things they like, pull those together and go, this is what I want to do. So from... A brief like that, for instance, I'll then try and minimise it a little bit and go, okay, but what is the overall direction of all these things they've given me? What's the theme here? What's the... What are they saying? Yeah, what is what is their point of view that I need to translate? So I guess it starts with that, like some simple ideas. I might come up with like a group of really basic words that describe that to kind of minimise that brief and then start again from there to make it a bit more original. But oh, colour is probably one of the things that I definitely think about in that initial process. Like what what is going to, what colours are going to help this, I guess, stand out or meet the brief. And then sketching, which I mentioned. So if, it, if I immediately start to get ideas, which sometimes you will get a brief and you'll immediately go, oh, I've got some great ideas. Mm. Or what is probably more common for me is I'll be doing something else completely, walking the dog or <laughs> of course, of course, cooking, watching yeah, a TV yeah. show, and just seeing some snippet of something in in an interior or a set. Oh, hang on, that sparked something else in my head, and then I go on, you know, like a a bit of a tangent and end up somewhere else completely. So, but that sketching in that process often helps. If I'm walking the dog, I've just got to try and remember. <laughs> By the time you get home. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yeah, my creative process isn't, it's definitely not structured. I'm trying to, try, I guess I'm trying to structure myself a little bit more because I'm not a particularly structured person. And I think sometimes in a commercial world, we do need a little bit of that process and structure. But my personal creative process doesn't have a start and end. It's more of a constant thinking about things 
while I'm brushing my teeth, while I'm in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> we call that layering. <laughs> so it is kind of a process in that time helps sometimes ideas to come out. Definitely. Um, you know, it's the bit of the dripping tap thing, like you're keeping on working on it really. And we mm. love sometimes to work on something quite intently and then if we can have a day or two where we don't don't actually work on it. Yes. You know, even it's that thing, you know, the night before I can't think of another thought, come back in the morning, you've got fresh eyes. Yeah, definitely. And I adore that as part of the creative process where you can just build it up over time. And then interestingly, as you go, you get more information or you get new ideas or new feedback from your collaborators as well. And that sort of weaves into the thread and it slowly kind it builds yeah. I think don't you yeah definitely a hundred percent I think that sometimes the worst thing you can do is fully focus on that one thing unless you're you know really in the zone sometimes it's better actually to resolve it without even working on it so your brain's still thinking about it obviously in the mm. background, even mm. when you're doing something yeah. else. And then it sort of goes, oh, hang on, what about this? Yeah, and there it is, <laughs> <Yeah>. boom. <laughs> There's the yeah. solution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And collaboration is something that I think all creatives are pretty great at these these days. Tell us about the people that you've worked with that you love collaborating with. I have amazing clients who are fantastic, but a lot of them really just let me do my thing. Probably my best collaborator over the years has been Heather Nettie King, working with her in the early days of my experiences with um, the colour forecast. We really worked so well together and we kind of believed in each other's ideas so that I think when you have that, it always makes you kind of a bit better. So oh, what about this? Yes, that's amazing. And what about if we did this? So, you know, you're building upon mm -hmm. each other's ideas um, and nothing was sort of out of the question and we're both a bit kooky. <laughs> <laughs> Kooky's good in the creative world. We like that. That's yeah. your, the superpower really, isn't it? Um, you know, Heather would always love to find some random vintage thing that we didn't even know what it was sometimes. How about we put this in the shot? Okay, I don't know what it is, but it looks interesting. <laughs> Hopefully Go with it's it. not some medical device <laughs> that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, so that 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 was always amazing to work with her and then photographers when if it's a shoot working with great photographers is really important uh, I've worked with quite a few but I work consistently with Mike Baker and uh, Lisa Cohen and we just both I don't know sometimes when you've worked with someone and you you understand each other's processes you know that you make the shot better because you're working on it together mm. and you know you question each other is that really the right angle could the light be like this and then it is better because you questioned it. And the same thing, you know, with the photographers going, yeah, I don't know about that composition. Maybe just take that one thing out. Or mm. how about we just move that slightly to the right? And they sound like tiny things, but they can just change Absolutely. the shot to being Absolutely. kind of amazing, good, and then it's amazing because of that collaboration. So talk to me about the relationship creatively between, I'll say, the sonographer or set designer or stylist and the photographer because, you know, sometimes you look at images and you go, was that the photographer or was that the stylist? I think the best images, it's usually both. both. Yeah. Because, you know, I've worked with some 
I mean, nearly every photographer I've worked with has been amazing, but there's some that I've worked with where I just know the work wasn't as good as it could be because we didn't understand each other or or they weren't as maybe passionate about the shot. Mm. You know, that happens mm. sometimes. Mm. They're just there to capture it and they don't really want to have any input. And I know that it could be better if I worked with someone who's, I guess, more collaborative and will discuss. So, you know, you can be um, maybe even just feeling a bit unsure about something. Does that work? You need someone to tell you honestly if it does or it doesn't. Confidently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that can change the whole, the whole way you work together and then the work is better, I think, when you're very honest about what you think, usually in a nice way. Of course, <laughs> of course. Absolutely. And um, I feel like what you're describing to me about shooting, it's making me remember how much work there is involved in this. Talk to me about the days before a shoot and the prep leading up to that. I know, um, you know, I've only done really small amounts of that sort of work, but I know there's a lot of work in it. Tell us about the days leading up to the shoots. Yeah, shoot work is interesting in that way because it's it's such a big job for sometimes one day's work. You know, if I can use the Dulux colour forecast as an example, you know, we shoot we shoot a 10-hour day and I essentially redecorate a whole house in that time. So when I compare that to, say, doing a private interior design job that might take me two years to finish, yeah. <laughs> it's Some completely shoot work different. is just very intense. Um, so sometimes it's only a couple of days depending on what the shoot is and and sometimes I can just do it in my sleep, you know, it's easy. But something like forecast where there's a lot of creativity that goes into every single shot, I have to think about literally everything that is in that room down to the flower that's coming out of that particular vase or the book that's on the coffee table. So there's a lot. I think I don't have a lot of room for anything else in those days leading up um, to that shoot because I am still ticking everything off in my head and thinking about Mental every list. single angle and room and, okay, for that shot, what is going to go in here? And then you've got, and then you've got the stress of, so you potentially have called in the furniture and the artwork and all the decor that you're going to use, and then so you may have called call that in on a Tuesday and you're shooting the following Tuesday. Then over the weekend things sell. Yeah, well, that's yeah. <laughs> and you've had this perfect uh, like, artwork like, or you know, <laughs> piece of furniture and it's no longer available, and then you've got to replace it with something that you don't feel is is as good. Or you're just not used to it yet or yeah, yeah, you've had your heart set and on the other thing. And nobody obviously yeah. sees that. In yeah, no one knows. And occasionally yeah. I'll find something better. So, you know, well, that's the ultimate, isn't right? it? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> but it is quite, you're just on alert and quite in a high stress sort of environment in the lead up to those sort of shoots where you know you've got to capture quite a lot of content. Do you have an assistant on that occasion? I have three on those shoots. Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah it's um, not you throwing couches <laughs> over the top of beds and stuff by yourself. Uh, assistants are the best. And I worked with some amazing assistants who, you know, I could not do what I do without them being there, even just, you know, packing props and making sure they all go back to the right suppliers yes. and, 
you know, I have done that on my own in the very early days. It's a lot of work. Oh, it's just, yeah. I don't think my brain has room for that anymore. So, um, yeah, being obviously you have to be super organised on a shoot because everything does come into a house and then leave again and it has to go back where it came from. Yes, of course. (laughs) So, yeah. Someone has to go in and take photos first. (laughs) We do that as well. exactly, yes. That's insane. Now tell me, I had a really great conversation a couple of podcasts ago with Lauren Lee and we were talking about this word timeless. Ah, yes. And we were like, actually, what are we saying with timeless? You know, everyone wants a timeless interior. And then we were like, whose time? What What is this thing? Mm. Like obviously you can't make a interior with a crazy interesting mood if you're worried about making it last 20 years. Yeah. And it all came up because we were talking about a couch. It's like, oh, my God, $15,000 on a couch. What sort of couch are we going to get? Because it's expensive. Yeah. And then we were like, yeah, you'd want something that's timeless. And we're like, actually, no, you want something that's fabulous. Yes. So what are your thoughts on timelessness? Is this a thing that we should just let go of now, I think? It's interesting, isn't it, that I think that often the things we call timeless, we don't at the time. (laughs) (laughs) We look back on things and go, oh, that was timeless. But nobody knew that was timeless. And it it is still of a time. So we might go back and go, that 50s, oh, that was a timeless look. But actually, no, it was a 50s look. (laughs) But it's we like it because it's still relevant, I guess. So maybe that's what makes it, we think, then call it timeless. Yeah, I think so. I think that, and I think everything's, not everything stays relevant. I shouldn't say that, but I think everything has its time and then often will have its time again, you know, because maybe the mood of the world is similar to it was in the fifties or whatever it is that's sort Mm. of harking us back to that time. But timeless in terms of design, interior design, I think it's a bit of a farce, particularly of a client or, you know, as you brought up, uh, okay, you know, we need to spend $15,000 on a sofa, which could be a cheap sofa these days, mm. by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> You're doing well to get a great timeless sofa for 15. I think there's this sort of expectation that, um, you know, we want to invest in things that are never going to go out of style, which I think is kind of ridiculous because things will come in and out of style. What you need to invest in is two things quality so that it does last. And the second thing is something that you love. That's what makes it timeless because you love it. And you might fall out of love with it in five, 10, 15 years, whenever it is. And then, you know, it's not for you anymore. And hopefully because you invested in a piece that's got great quality and great style, you can sell that to someone else who then will love it. Um, So I kind of, I kind of think timelessness is sort of a bit of an illusion in a way, Mm, really. mm. Um, And it's like, you know, the whole, if you own a house and you've brought an interior designer in, or even if you haven't and you're painting or you're decorating or buying things and you make that mistake of buying the the grey sofa or the beige Mm. sofa because you think, well, then it won't go out of style. But it makes you kind of miserable. (laughs) For all those nights you sit on it, yeah. When you were in the store, you kept looking at the yellow one and And it was so joyful and amazing. But, oh, maybe that will go out of style. Who cares? Buy it because you love it and because it brings you some sort of emotion and joy, not depressive emotion because it's beige. (laughs) And you've done the right thing. 
Yeah, I think there's advice. There's there's a balance there, right? Of making these decisions for some future thing that might happen, like selling your house. We better paint it all white because of resale value. Will you selling it next week? (laughs) But also, I think all white. I mean, I'm being quite general. But, you know, when you do that, even if you are about to sell your house, what you do is kind of, I don't think you create a blank slate because most people find it difficult to imagine spaces, right? You need to create something that people feel some connection to. So taking all the personality out Out of of something to sell it. So it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, because then it's nothing. Yeah. (laughs) You want someone to walk in and go, oh, this feels such such a lovely home. I love the feel of it. Well, how do you do that if you take all the personality out of it? Yeah. Anyway, I find that quite fascinating. It is fascinating, isn't it? Approach. Yeah. And I do think though, there is a thing some people like something that's more vibrant or intense. But like for me, who works in that sort of industry, I actually like home to be calm. Yeah. You know, quite calming. So I guess it depends what you want from your environment oh, as, as well, you know, functionally yes. yeah. as well. Yeah. And I'm not um, saying, you know, oh, there's, and obviously no. there are people who are very drawn to those calming colors and that's what they want in their space. Mm. I think it's just making that decision for the right reasons and that are right for yeah, the person. Exactly. Because there is a bit of this sort of, interiors that turn your head yeah it's like fashion yeah. it's like you know sometimes you walk into a room of color and you go oh my god this is amazing and then another time you know sometimes when you walk into someone's house who does do neutrals well you just go oh this is like creamy mm. so pretty and just like oh gorgeous and warm and yeah. fabulous you know and You can get a lot of, I feel like, interior jealousy, I'll call it, of, you know, with your own home. How do you rationalise that? Or is it like you were saying, just go with what you love? It's really interesting when we talk about, yeah, the head turning interiors. And they don't don't necessarily have to be super colourful and crazy and out there. They can just be interiors that were done beautifully. The proportions are right. You know, there's a beautiful mix of materials. Perhaps it's super calming with a really tonal palette. That makes a space just as amazing as the one that has all the vibrant contrasting colour and pattern. Mm. Um, but it absolutely comes down to the space you're trying to create in your own home and mm. what works for you. For you. And I think sometimes people do struggle with what that is because they may be very drawn to those attention-grabbing interiors, mm. but actually their space needs to be the other tonal, calming, beautifully tactile space because that's what they need to live with. So they just need to understand they can look at those. Yes, yes. You don't have to have it all in your <laughs> you house don't have at to once. Have it. Yeah. So yeah. I guess a, a great interior designer will work that out for you. Mm. You know, they'll have those conversations. That's why you need the experts. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it. So tell me, what's the flow of your day look like? What's the shape of your day? You have a family. How do you fit everything in? How do you go about life in that sense, fitting work and play? I am quite lucky in that uh, at that stage, it's nothing to do with luck actually, where my kids are teenagers. So I do have to do a lot less for them. Like there's no getting them ready in the morning to get them out the door. They've got to do all of that themselves. That's a great moment. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Isn't it? something to look forward to if you do have young children mm-hmm. is, is just having that slight amount of freedom. Um, and I guess my days are quite different 
they're not all the same. I might have a week that looks the same sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm at the desk every day. There's admin. There's design work. But then if it's a shoot week, that'll look completely different to a week where you're working on an interior design project, for instance. So I love that, though. I really like each day to be quite different. Usually I try and walk the dog as early as possible <laughs> because That's otherwise good. she's literally quite a big dog and she'll try and jump into my lap while I'm working if I haven't walked her. I try and get some sort of form of exercise in most days because I find that really helps to keep me focused as well. And I do need, I guess, a little bit of structure. I, I have ADHD, so something I've only discovered later in life as well. So I find that if I don't have any structure at all, I tend to probably move around too much into different things and jump around jump and around just kind of focus on what I mm. want to work on. So I have to have a little bit of discipline in that. So I try to plan the days ahead. Otherwise I can feel like I'm doing so much and actually get nothing done. <laughs> and do you mind me asking, how did you find out about that? Uh, it was during COVID, during the long lockdowns in Melbourne. I'd never considered it before. One of my brothers was diagnosed when he was younger because he's quite outwardly uh, hyperactive and I was never that. I was the daydreamer. Mm. So it never even occurred to me. And I was listening to actually a podcast mm. <laughs> where another stylist, a, a UK stylist, was just talking quite openly about um, her ADHD and her time blindness. And I'd never heard that before. And then she was talking about it and what she was saying was resonating with me. And from there, I just kind of deep dived into time blindness. What is this? And almost did a very ADHD thing of like going into a deep dive of um, hyper-focusing on what is this thing and just ticking box after box after box and then having to go through the process. And this was sort of before there's a lot of talk about it now, mm. which is fantastic, mm. I think, because even though there's also people going, oh, it's a bit of a trend, it's only because people are talking about it that it feels like it's a trend it's just that people are being more open um, and as people are more open about it, exactly the way that I sort of discovered, more people think, hang on a minute, particularly women, older women who maybe have always had particular struggles and not really understood why mm. are now sort of connecting back to some of these stories that they're hearing. And going, um, hey, yes, that's me you're describing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and a lot of creatives as well I think is quite common. Um, yeah, and so then just went through the process of starting with the GP and having that conversation and then, yeah. yeah, going down the line from there and getting tested. And, yeah, so I am I am not hyperactive necessarily on the outside, like quite mm. visibly, although if you really watch me, you'll see I'm usually stimming in some way. So yeah, it might doing be something. tapping my foot or, you know, picking at my finger or biting the inside of my chair. I have all these little things that I do, but it's in my head that I'm hyperactive, so constantly thinking and sometimes, you know, you cannot quiet that mind. So, yeah, and it's it's something that I've obviously done okay during my lifetime, but that when you realise that you've had, I guess, this thing that perhaps if you had have understood earlier in life, some things would have been different, some decisions perhaps you made would have been different, um, there's nothing you can do about that now, but understanding it and um, learning to work with that I guess has helped me build on my strengths mm. and realise where I can't fix things. So yes. I have to have either someone else has to do that or um, I need to have structure to help me do it. So, yeah, it's good to understand. Definitely. And ultimately people, I often, you know, feel 
things like this are also your superpower in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. feel there's always you are who you are today because of that. And as well as the, you know, the challenges that you might have, it also makes you brilliant at what you do and who you are. So yeah. I often feel like those things, you I know. I definitely uh, think it's um, connected to my creativity mm. and that sort of hyper-focus and the daydreaming. <laughs> the downfalls are that sometimes you can be having a conversation with someone even like we are now or more listening to someone and you really quite focus on listening to them and then your brain will just something else comes else. in and you have a whole separate thought sometimes thought. to do with what the discussion Mission is. is. Yeah. And I'm, I've become quite good at trying to listen to that person's fault <laughs> and also have and this other thing, thing. Yeah. and then try and remember what it was I so think that that's when they're finished. <laughs> I think that's adept. I think that's very smart. Uh, Two yes. conversations so, at once. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Um, it doesn't always work, but yeah. yeah. Oh, it's looking it's looking pretty good, Brie. It's <laughs> all good. All right. So for those in our industry, what would you want people to understand about having the type of business that you have? I think the biggest thing often is that when you are someone who works on your own, remembering that things do take time, that you don't have a whole team of people. I mean, I often have freelancers come and help me and you know the workload changes so you bring people in and also people who are experts at particular things or outsource but you are still one person and sometimes that means you can't answer an email straight away <laughs> for instance mm. so I guess managing that and that's a good one because creativity has a value and it can be bought now which is great for all of us mm. but sometimes it depends on who's buying the idea and their view of how easy or how quickly they need that idea, which sometimes can be challenging. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's part of what I've needed to do over the years is to educate the people that you work with about the process in a way I think has been pretty important. Yeah, no, I think you. that's 100% right. <laughs> and I guess, you know, you can be more than one person, but still there's particularly in the creative field, Things can't just, you can't just come up with things. Yes, I mean, I occasionally that well, does happen, can, right? But, you know, um, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but, you know, you do need time then to develop that and make sure it's right. And, yeah. Yeah, and be able to, I guess, come back to them with also something that you can present that explains the idea too. So there's, yeah. there's work in that. Absolutely. Well, it's got to, things have to have meaning for the client. You know, yes, otherwise absolutely. it's not just the creativity yeah, that's making we can it work. come up with things off the top Anyhow, of the head. Yeah, yeah if it's going <laughs> to be the want. right thing, doesn't exactly. it? Absolutely. There's a new question we've been asking over the last few weeks and it was, if there's an elephant in the room in your industry, what is it? What is it that there is something that you're not talking about? Hmm. It's probably to do with pricing and, and timing. So things like the block. Shows like The Block, which I know have great entertainment value, often hinder the, you know, the average interior designer just trying to go about their business and having clients come to them with very unreasonable expectations about how long things take, the process of decorating or designing a home and doing it well and then executing it and finishing it. I think there's definitely some unreasonable expectations around timeframes particularly now a lot of the timeframes have blown out, but that's another thing. And then how much it costs to do those things because 
what you want it to cost means nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's what it costs and the time to do it. Yeah. yeah, and you've got to remember almost what I said before that, you know, sometimes you, you're you looking at a, a very small business and they're, they're relying on your project, you know, to pay their bills as well. So I think that it's easy for clients to keep adding things to a scope and not realising that actually, no, we need to keep bit of scope creep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but actually you need to pay for that scope creep. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. often quite bad at not, um, you know, a little bit of scope creep is, yeah. is fine. You we always like to give rather than right. take. Right. But exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that can become unreasonable sometimes too. Yeah, I think they're probably the big things. The other thing that probably bothers me in our industry, which is more to do with um, designers themselves, is... Um, replicas and the fact that we still in Australia have quite a prevalent industry of of replica furniture that some designers tend to overlook. I try very hard not to. Sometimes Mm. you can get caught out. Mm. I just think it's super important that people think about the fact that I think a lot of people go, oh, replicas are, you know, so what? They're, They're ripping off casino or some big brand that's sort of off somewhere else that they don't really have to think about. But what I've seen happen time and time again is our local makers being copied and their brand or product that they've spent all that time. Yeah. Mm. I know um, a ceramicist who's stopped producing her particular work because it just got copied so much that it just wasn't viable for her anymore. You know, and she's Mm. a single business person and that's the money she's making to live her life. So we can very easily kind of think that it doesn't really matter, but I really think it does. Um, So that's something I kind of think about in our industry as well. It's very important. Mm. Yeah. There's nothing more cringeworthy than a fake bag. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it's it's the same thing Mm. in interiors as well. Yeah. It's very, it's disappointing um, when that does happen. What stresses you out? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> what stresses me out? Oh, probably often my workload. It's it's very, it fluctuates. I'm a roller coaster with, with work. So sometimes it's that, just, okay, how am I going to get all this done? And it usually works out, but <laughs> that's definitely one. Money, I think everyone worries about that, don't they? For sure. For, absolutely. Um, I'm a single parent, so I often have that in my mind, how am I going to do this all on my own and make sure everybody's looked after? Yeah, those are probably the main things, but I don't know. I am a bit of a warrior. I might pick up on something so small, like something someone said the day before. <laughs> <laughs> and just keep it there, keep it going in and the head. And analyse it yeah. and rework it in my mind. Should I have replied in this way? How did they anticipate that? Or like, you know, what was I my response? I feel that's quite a few people who are listening today. <laughs> I do. Tell me. What rule do you think you broke when you started your business? I think that I'm very direct. So I would would not necessarily just give a client what they want, and that's brands as well as private interiors. I will push those boundaries and say, no, you should be doing it like this. So I'm quite outspoken, which sometimes is good. <laughs> it's always good, right? It's always good. Um, but I do think that's definitely something that has, you know, even working with Julux initially, as I explained earlier, and they were doing a particular type of thing. And then the next year I went, well, actually, 
we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> I actually remember my partner at the time saying, like, oh, toe the line. This is, a, you know, it's great to be working with them. <laughs> but don't um, push it. Yeah. And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. so appreciative to be working with an amazing brand like Dulux, but your job as a creative person is to push all those boundaries. And if you just sit back and kind of just do what you're told to do and not challenge the person giving you the brief, if you think the brief can be better or what can be done can be better, then you're not really doing your job and you won't kind of move. You'll just be stuck. So, you know, I sort of ignored that toe the line thing and went, no, if I'm going to do this, even if it's just this one time that I do it, I'm going to do it the way I think it should be done. And it was the best thing I ever did because, you know, people noticed and I'm still going. <laughs> and it was a good move. And it, it, yeah, it's a good move. And I think once you do it once, you get the understanding and the confidence to just keep being yourself. Yeah. And I definitely. feel like that's what you've done. And that's why your work is so unique. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And no, I do think that, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a super confident person, even though I think I do probably come across that way quite often. But I do say what's on my mind to the point where I have gotten in trouble for that as well. (laughs) Um, And I probably have a better filter now that I'm, you know, older than what I was like when I was younger and, you know, just blurt things out and then go, oh, hang on, I probably said it that that way. Maybe I could have been slightly, uh, you know, more tactful in the way I said it. But I do tend to say what I think about things and I'm probably known for that as well. Fantastic. Tell me, what does social media mean to you and how has it helped or hindered your business? Oh, gosh, it's something that um, at the beginning, and I'll just speak specifically to Instagram because that's sort of my main love of social social media. I keep trying to get into TikTok and then I just forget it exists. <laughs> and oh, hang I'm on, a bit I like that really too. be doing that. I loved it at the beginning. It was such a communal space. So... You know, there was a lot of, you know, hashtags that you would join into and take shots in your house of vignettes and all of that sort of stuff. And that was how I sort of gained a love of social media and and kind of built an organic following through that early on. Then it's now it's now a bit of a thorn in my side in some ways because I I think the fun of it's gone out of it a little bit for me and it's become a business tool and a really important one, to be honest. I Mm, think that a lot of people know who I am because of social media, but I struggle with, okay, I need to post something. And then this perfectionist thing comes in. Is that the right image to post? What do I write? Do I have the energy to do that right now? So I'm not the greatest at being consistent with it. And I know that if I was more consistent with it, I'd probably also do better with it. Or if you had someone managing it for you. (laughs) Well, that. Of course. Yes. And I have started to think about that a little bit too because um, I do think it's an important business tool for myself. And I do, I still love it and I still love being, I spend a lot of time on it. We all do. (laughs) Every week when it tells you how long you've been on the phone for. Oh, I hate those. They're frightening. (laughs) Yeah, it it is frightening. What's it gone down this week or up? I know, yeah. So I guess if I look at it from the other side, so that's just my my personal, you know, account and what I should, what I should be doing. I always feel like I'm not doing what I should be doing. But what I do love is that I can discover new artists and creatives and Anywhere um, in the work. world. Yeah, yeah, there's it's it's dropped those boundaries, right? We we are able to discover someone 
um, you know, some artist in Brazil or a furniture maker in Brazil that I've recently discovered who doing these fantastic things, you know, you, that would have been much harder to find. You probably would have found it because someone else had found it first or an international magazine. So I love that. Mm. I really love that, particularly for artists too. I'm always looking for new artwork and yeah. And do you have a favourite interior designer or someone, you know, on Instagram that you just adore looking at their work? I think it's oh, there's so, just so many. Yeah, I feel like it's harder to narrow that down these days. There's so many I've amazing I've always people. admired Kelly Wurstler and, and her, her work is beautiful but also I guess her business is very well structured and she's done that very well. So I, I tend to be women that I kind of gravitate towards in terms of what are they doing and and how are they running their business as well as the beautiful work because I think that there's something to learn there usually for us as designers and the Australian designers I feel like it's it's the usual yeah <laughs> you could probably say them and I yeah. go yes 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 yeah you know it's it's flack um it's YSG Brem who you mentioned yeah, before yeah. doing beautiful things um, but I love also trying to find people who are obviously, you know, up and coming and and what they're doing. But I guess for me, I often also look at artwork um, mm. or things outside of interiors. Movies are a huge inspiration for me. I'm often half watching the movie and half, half watching yeah, the what's yeah, in the background totally, or what have they totally. done there or something's caught my eye or the way it's filmed so that's a big part of my inspiration. And music, that's huge. And I'll go through many, many stages and different types of music. I, ha I have noticed too that you do travel. Tell me about what travel means to you and the inspiration that is gained from that, if that's what you get from it. Gosh, I do love travel and I wish I'd travelled more than I have. Um, I hope to change that and travel a lot more in the in the coming years. But um. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's just newness as well for me when the I travel. Novel. Yeah. Mm. Seeing things for the first time, experiencing food, culture. Food is a really big part of it as well for me. But also how other people do things and not living in your own little bubble. It's very easy to just sort of stay where you are and do what you do and be quite comfortable. That's definitely not me. I mean, I love that. But I want to be challenged and I want to have new experiences. And I think that that actually just, I guess, opens your mind to think in a different way or gain a different perspective. And then that can kind of filter through into your work. So maybe that's how you get that little bit more originality as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now tell me, what keeps you grounded and what brings you joy? Uh, my family definitely keeps me grounded. You know, I can spend a day out in design world and, you know, people might know who I am and I get to spend time with amazing people and we're looking at gorgeous design. And then I go home and put on my tracksuit and Ugg boots and hang out with my dog and my three boys and I'm just a mum <laughs> with a messy house and dishes to do and washing to do. So that's 100% what keeps me grounded. What was the other thing? Joy. Joy. What's, yes. Yeah. What brings you joy? Well, they do as well, but absolutely travel is probably one of the big things, dining experiences, eating out, um, spending time with people you love. Like that's probably one of the biggest things, isn't it? Just people you really appreciate and that you can laugh with. Yes. And that lift you up. 
That's know, the, the people, cream, isn't it? Oh, it's the best. It is the cream, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. I've got a few quick questions sure. now. And one of them, I guess, is if you could just, I suppose, explain for us very quickly your preferred colour palette. I think we started on this before and I said it evolves, but I guess it's bold colour in any way. So it could be moody bold or bright bold. Let's just say bold. Perfect. What's your favourite job been in your career so far? Probably what I do now. I get to work on interior design with gorgeous clients and make their homes feel like a home. And I get to work with amazing brands like um, Dulux and create beautiful, inspiring images so that people can work on their own homes from that. Amazing. Are you a front of house person or a back of house person? Can I say that it depends on the day? <laughs> you can ease it. We're having a run of guests who are both and I'm loving it. Yeah, no, because sometimes I'm dying to be front of house or, you know, on the mic or, you know, on the dance floor getting the attention and sometimes I just want to curl up and not be seen. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we're obsessed with quotes. Do you have any quotes that you love? Oh, I was watching a show and I'm probably going to not quote it properly, but it was. Oh, I love to mess up a quote. Don't worry. <laughs> it was. I mean, there are some amazing ones, but this was something like beige. I don't know her. Like, <laughs> I think I saw that one too. That is so perfect for you, Brie. So perfect. I think there was a bit of swearing in the actual quote, but I, was, I went, oh, I have to remember that. <laughs> well, you've remembered it today and uh, this has been an amazing hour together with you getting to know you more and thank you so much for your generosity and all your insight and articulate wisdom. Brie Leach, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. 